0: And we turn in our Bibles then to 1 Peter and chapter number 1, First Peter chapter 1. And great to hear the children singing there. And we come to our third description of a Christian in First Peter and chapter 1, that of joyful We're looking at the the paragraph, uh, verses 6 to 9, and J. Adams, uh, in his commentary, the American Reformed homelastician and counsellor, he entitles this paragraph, verses 6 to 9, glad when sad. It's a snappy title, perhaps a little confusing, but as we'll see this evening, Accurate. These two emotions of gladness and sadness seem to be contradictory and problematic. But in the Christian's experience, they are often there, side by side, glad when sad. This very real conflict of feelings, gladness and sadness is constantly brought home to us in hearing of the sufferings of God's people. Michael Bentley, an English pastor who writes a commentary on First Peter, describes in his comments in this paragraph the pain that he as a pastor, as a Christian, experienced in losing his 18-year-old son in a car crash. He knew sorrow. He knew the depths of suffering and pain. And yet he recalls the presence of Christian joy. We've been praying for Pastor Gudarzi and his wife under arrest in Iran for witnessing. Does he have joy in his trial? We have prayed for April Hutchinson, who has been banned from weightlifting competitions for her maintenance of Christian values. Is she joyful? Such deep sorrows and many like them are here aligned in the Christian life, with deep joy. And reading through this letter, this is a constant and recurring battle. Suffering and joy often found together throughout the writings here. The word suffering occurs 16 times in this short letter of Peter. And the assertion of joy is often close by the recognition of suffering. So here is the third description that the Apostle Peter gives of a Christian in this first chapter. The Christian is joyful. The Christian is a happy person. The Christian, though he may wear a dark suit at times, carry a frown on his brow, smile infrequently, has a deep inner joy. The Christian knows she may look serious, act serious, and speak serious as a true happiness. Al Martin had a practice with his wife and three children of asking them each year if there was anything he was doing in the home that annoyed them. Uh, I am not sure about this, but anyway. (laughs) So... But on one occasion, he recalls very honestly that his children told him that he looked very serious all the time. He explains that this was produced by the sheer weight of the responsibility that he had as being a minister of the gospel that gave him such a, a sober experience. But he had, he recalls, a deep joy, a deep joy in Christ. And he sought to express that more and his facial features around his home. So Peter makes the assertion that the Christian has joy in verse 6. And in verse 8 he says, you rejoice. He's going to talk 16 times about suffering. Suffering is a regular theme in this letter. And yet he says twice to these same people people who are suffering deeply and are on the verge of suffering even more, you rejoice. Here is another feature of a Christian. He's a sensitive pastor. He recognizes the experiences that they're passing through. He recognizes the challenges to their deep spiritual joy. Experiences like water being poured on the fire of their joy, or like wind blowing into their faces, or like mud sucking them down. They are suffering and will suffer. And yet, he says, you rejoice. Their experiences will mitigate their joy. Their experiences of suffering will challenge their joy and threaten their joy and sometimes overpower their Christian joy. In verses 6 to 8, he identifies four such damaging, mitigating, and discouraging experiences by the use of the word though. He writes, you rejoice, though. And he's highlighting four things which are challenging that Christian joy which they possess. We use such contrasts, don't we? She is at church, though she has been recently bereaved. She is still bowling, though she is in her 80s. So here you rejoice, though you are now suffering, though your trials are like fire. Though you have never seen Jesus. Though you do not see Jesus now. We want to examine this sensitive, this realistic, this pastoral treatment of the joyful Christian. Firstly, Christian joy defined. And then secondly, Christian joy defended. And thirdly, Christian joy defended part two. Firstly then, Christian joy defined. You rejoice, he says, in verse 6 and in verse 8. The Christian is a person who has great joy. Alongside of being chosen by God, as we've seen, as being heirs of heaven, as we have noticed, is that the Christian is joyful. And these verses describe the Christian joy. Christian joy is the deepest type of joy. The Greek word means much joy. The Greek word is used only 11 times in the New Testament and 3 of those times is in First Peter 2 of them in this paragraph. Verse 6 you rejoice. Verse 8 you rejoice and then once in chapter 4. The joy referred to is described as in verse 8 inexpressible and filled with glory this is no ordinary joy this is no common joy this is no temporal joy this is a deep joy that the Christian has here is another feature of the Christian chosen heirs and joyful it's not a smile or a cackle or excited butterflies in our stomach. It means extreme joy. It is the word used of Mary when she was told of the birth of Messiah. In Luke 1, she said, My soul rejoices in God my Savior. That was no superficial joy, no temporary joy. No casual joy. That was a deep, full, rich joy. The fulfillment of those Old Testament promises. The one coming to save her soul. My soul rejoices. And God my Savior. The word is also used of Abraham. And this is a a wonderful one. In John 8, 56. He rejoiced, Jesus says. He rejoiced to see my day. Imagine Abraham with his pagan background called from out of the east, but told of a saviour who would cover over all his sins. What level of joy do you think he had? It was deep, it was rich, it was uncommon. He rejoiced to see my day. And The word is used on the rare occasion when the gospel writers speak. Of the joy of Jesus. Luke 10 verse 21. He rejoiced in spirit. As he heard of the mission of the disciples. And, and the power of the spirit working through them. In their preaching and in their miracles. He rejoiced and this Is the type of joy we have the joy of Jesus, the joy of Abraham, the joy of Mary at the announcement of the birth of Jesus. This is not shallow, this is not casual, this is not temporary. You rejoice, the Apostle Peter says a deep joy, a rich joy, a full joy, the joy of scoring a goal is great, isn't it? The joy of getting your spellings right at the Friday test is great, isn't it? But the deep joy of being a Christian is something richer and fuller and more momentous. But where does that joy come from then? What what is the source and origin? And, And the Apostle Peter identifies two sources of this joy for us. One in verse 6 and one in verse 8 where he says you rejoice. One is the connection uh, to the the glorious future of the believer in heaven that we thought of this morning. He says at the start of verse 6 in this you rejoice. The thought of the life to come. The thought of the salvation to come. The thought of the inheritance unfading to come. That is a prime source of our joy, isn't it? When we suffer when we're disappointed, when we fail, when we sin, when life is overbearing to us, we think of heaven and the glory of heaven, and this brings to us this uncommon, unearthly joy. The second source of our joy is in Jesus Christ. In verse 8, you believe in him and rejoice. Knowing Jesus Savingly and personally and having the assurance of forgiveness is this second source of joy. Heaven and its glorious future waiting for us. Jesus and his atoning work and presence and all sufficient power also brings to us this uncommon, this unearthly, this Abraham-like, this Mary-like, this Jesus-like type of joy. And so we come to this description of it in verse 8. Inexpressible and full of glory. What a description. The joy that is in the heart of the Christian. Inexpressible. The only time this word is used in the New Testament. Just think about that. The only time. This word is used. Think of all the things that the New Testament talks about, but it uses a unique word to describe the joy that we have in Christ. It's inexpressible. It's like the joy of graduation, it's like the joy of hearing about a, a, the announcement of a birth. But it's more than that, it's much more than that. It goes beyond that. It's inexpressible. It cannot be compared to other levels of joy. It's in a league of its own. Thayer in his lexicon defines the word as to which words are inadequate. The joy of knowing that you're going to heaven is so great that it cannot be described. The joy of knowing Jesus as your own, as your personal saviour, cannot be be put into words. Linguists, translators, philosophers, elocutionists have all tried to capture Christian joy in sentences, in speeches and in books, but they have failed. It bursts the banks of language. It is inexpressible. And filled with glory, I favour the interpretation That the glory here refers to God. God in the life of the Christian. In the Old Testament, God and glory are often synonymous. We have the titles of God, the God of glory, the Lord of glory, the spirit of glory. Emphasizing that glory and God are often joined together. His very presence in our lives. By his spirit. Reconciled to us by the blood of Jesus brings to us unutterable, inexpressible joy. Consistency, convenience, flavor, texture was used in ranking 27 most common fruits. Bottom of the pile was cranberries. Top of the pile was pineapples if we're to rank the nine fruits of the Spirit, love would be first, and I guess joy would be last. We consider the fruits of patience, of faithfulness, of goodness, of kindness to be more important But joy is second in the list of the fruit of the Spirit, indicating to us its importance and significance in the life of the Christian. Inexpressible and full of glory. Mary Berry said it was a joy to work with our new production team. And there is many joys in this world. Many of them are temporary. They're short-lived. They're fragile. They're easily broken. They're often disturbed. As children, perhaps we learned the few words. If you want joy, real joy, wonderful joy, let Jesus come into your heart. It's a simple chorus, but it emphasizes this truth that ultimate joy is found in knowing Jesus as our Savior and thereby having the hope of heaven. Christian joy defined. Secondly, Christian joy defended part one. We're thinking of two of the challenges to joy that that are set out for us, one in verse six and one in. In verse 7, both of them referring to trials, and trials are a challenge to our Christian joy. And so the writer says, you rejoice though you have been grieved by various trials, in verse 6. And in verse 7, you rejoice though you are tested by fire. So here the apostle is considering the challenges to our Christian joy And in this first instance, he's looking at trials that challenge our joy. And he notes a number of features about these challenges that we face. He sees that they they come in different forms. He describes them as various trials. For some Christians, the trial is physical in illness or disability. For others, the trial is mental and depression or stress. For others, the trial is spiritual and doubts or persecution. For others, it's an emotional trial in trying to love our enemies. But in the Psalms, we see all kinds of trials coming down upon the writers. and They express their struggles and challenges with them. For some, the trial comes from family, as in the case of Joseph, For others the trial comes from peers, as in the case of Daniel. For others the trial comes from superiors, as in the case of David, from King Saul. For some the trial is long, like Mary, who lived under the cloud of immorality all her life. For others the trial is short, like Stephen, the first martyr. But these trials though varied in so many ways, they do cause us grief. They challenge our joy. And the apostle uses this word here in in the text. We are grieved by these trials. The word grieved comes from a, a Greek word for down. The trials bring down. They pull down. They beat down. They force down the spirit of believers. The word is used of King Herod being grieved when he had to sentence John to execution. It's used of the disciples being grieved when Jesus said that one among them would betray him. And here it's used of Christians in trials. They are grieved. The pain is deep. They're being pulled down. By the oppression, by the illness, by the stress that's weighing down upon them. But Peter supplies for us the reason why trials, painful though they are, do not completely extinguish Christian joy. And the reason he gives us in verses 6 and 7 is that these trials are not random. They are not bad luck, but they have a purpose in God's plan for our lives. God has a reason for them. Our trials are not mistakes. They are not God's plan gone wrong. They are not the devil taking over the controls. But we, he says, retain our joy in trial because God has not left us. He is with us. In that fiery furnace, the image used to illustrate the claim of Peter is that of gold being refined in the fire. In the fire, the gold is refined and purified. The impurities are extracted from the metal by the heat of the furnace. And so he argues that our emergence from trials will produce in a Christian praise and honor and glory. That is, that a person with a character refined will bring praise and honor and glory to God. That others will look at us and see God's grace and working in us. They will see his workmanship, his craftsmanship, his refining in our lives. And they will praise and honor and glorify our God. William writes, With some truth, the best in this world brings out the worst in unbelievers. And we see that. A promotion sometimes. Coming into money sometimes. Success in a certain area on some occasions. The best in this world brings out the worst in unbelievers. It totally tran- changes the person f- f- for the worse. But then he says the worst in this world brings out the best in Believers. And that's our prayer, and that's our desire, and that's our hope. That our trial, that our oppression, that our stress, that our illness will bring praise and honour and glory unto God. in our best moments as a Christian, we believe that the thing that has advanced us most as a Christian is our trials. As we've studied others, as we've studied ourselves, that has no doubt been our conclusion. William Carey's warehouse burning down all his translation work and printing press being consumed back to square one. He and his colleagues give themselves to prayer. Samuel Rutherford, imprisoned for preaching the gospel, brings forth from him Tremendous letters and pastoral insights. Fame, wealth, success has not advanced our Christian life as much as our trials have. We, certainly, I am humbler, gentler, more dependent on God in our trials. So joy and suffering, Peter's arguing here, are two sides of the one coin. They're not two separate coins. The suffering challenges our joy. But the Christian joy also challenges our suffering. Our Christian joy takes the hopelessness away from our suffering. It provides for us an anchor in the storm, the joy of heaven and its glory, the joy of knowing Jesus Christ as our personal Savior mitigates and fights against the trials in our life. People and philosophers have debated over which is greater of these two sides of the coin, joy or suffering. One writer says, They are inseparable. Together they come. And when one sits alone with you at your table, remember that the other is asleep upon your bed. If joy is uppermost in our life today, then suffering is round the corner. And if suffering is uppermost in your life, then joy, Christian joy, is near. Thirdly, Christian joy defended part two. The second threat to our Christian joy, the writer says in verse number eight, is being absent from Jesus, not having seen Jesus and being absent From Jesus, he he gives us those two points in in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, that's point one. Though you do not see him now, the unseen Jesus and the absent Jesus are a threat to our Christian joy. The problem anticipated here is that, that Christians, like all people, have an element of the Apostle Thomas within us unless we see we will not believe and Peter recognizes this here and he addresses it here and helps us at this very point sometimes we use the phrase seeing is believing to respond to a boaster or a fantasizer I'm going to get three A's in my A levels Jane says I'm going to own a mansion, John says, and we respond to them Well, seeing is believing. When I see the A's on the certificate, then I'll believe. When I suck tea in your mansion, then I'll believe. Jesus had never been seen by any of these readers of this letter by Peter. Peter had seen Jesus. But his readers had not. At this point, he's entering into their shoes. How must they feel? What must they think? How must this challenge their Christian joy? Though you have not seen him in the flesh. Is this making you doubt? And they couldn't currently see him. Though you do not see him now. The angels could see him, but the readers of this letter in present day Turkey couldn't see him. And Peter recognizes that here's another set of challenges to their Christian joy. But he sees that the Christian joy is sustained and strengthened even in the presence of these two challenges in, to the sa- in relation to the Saviour in two ways. One is that they love Him. The other is that they trust in Him. He says in verse 8a, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. The Christian loves Jesus even though he or she has never seen him. It's not his physical presence or his beauty that attracts us to Jesus. We cannot see him. It's his love, his death for our sins, the assurance of it in the prophetic writings of the Old Testament and the inspired writings of the New Testament. Our love for Jesus. A response to his love for us sustains our joy. Though we do not see him, we counter that by loving him. Before Skype, there were long-distant romances carried on by letter without each party seeing each other face to face. The love of each party fed the joy of commitment to each other and the anticipation of seeing. One another. The unseen made the heart grow fonder. And you believe in him, Peter says. The second response to the unseen and the absent Jesus, which keeps our joy bubbling, is our faith in him. Our faith in his love and his salvation and his promises and his return to take us into his presence. Just as a captured soldier or the hostages in Gaza will continue to trust in their country or their comrades to come for them again, though they cannot see them, though their comrades are absent from them, they continue to believe in their commitment, in their interest, in their ability. So we, though we do not see Jesus now, Believe in him and rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible. Analysts of human nature have concluded from ancient times that human joy and happiness needs three things to sustain it something to do, someone to love, and something to hope for. A job that is enjoyable, the love of spouse or family holidays to look forward to. Take away three of those things or two of those things or one of those things they argued and our joy will be diminished. And here Peter is writing about our spiritual joy. And he focuses on two of those causes of joy in us. Someone to love the Lord Jesus. Something to hope for the glory of of heaven, And so we rejoice as believers, despite the challenges to our Christian joy from the trials that we experience. And despite the absence and, and unseen dimension of Jesus at this very time, we love him and we trust in him. Here is a third description of a Christian. Chosen. An heir. Joyful. Samuel Rutherford writes extensively on this theme of joy. He studied extensively in St. Andrews and was skilled in his abilities and insights. And one of his conclusions was that philosophers considered that we couldn't be full of joy in this world. There were so many trials, so many things to mitigate against that joy. But he appeals to this paragraph and to the assertion that the joy of the Christian is inexpressible and full of glory. And he argues that our Christian joy compared with the joy of heaven that awaits the believer, is not like two separate buildings, Lower Mary Street and our our church premises here, but rather like two rooms under one roof, the Lord Jesus Christ. In our Christian life, we live under the roof of Christ in, in one room, and we are filled with joy. And when we leave this world and enter heaven, we go into the other room and we are filled with greater joy.